It's Nick Jaina time. As always, I'm reading from my book, Get It While You Can. This episode features a couple chapters that were recorded live at the Sanctuary, it's the Sanctuary in Arcata, California on April 20th, which is 420, which is why I'm talking about marijuana so much. So I don't know if any of you ever uh, have to face the void, like the dark, the darkness, the dark, endless void that's on the periphery of like the scary emptiness underlying. Anyone? <laughs> Do I need to describe it in more detail? The thing that, you know, when the party's over and sort of faced with thinking about infinity or whatever you think about, sort of just sometimes swallows you up. Anyone? No? Okay. I know, I'm sorry. It's not like you're, you want to like jump up and be like, yeah, the boy! Um, so the, part of what this book is about is going to this silent meditation retreat. I don't know if anybody's ever done Vipassana meditation, where you go, yep, you go for 10 days, uh, you know this, and you have to give up your phone and computer, and you don't write or read or anything, and, and, um, the, and you focus on this meditation. And the hard part for me wasn't, ta- wasn't not talking, because I don't really like talking, but um, the nighttime, you have to go to bed at 9, and uh, I was never tired. And uh, I, there's nothing to check in with. You can't call anyone, you can't read a book, you can't do anything. And um, can't look at the warrior's score. And uh, you're just faced with that darkness, which I guess is part of the whole point of it. But for me, it was hard, because normally in those moments, I guess either, you know, I, I, marijuana helps with that. Like it's sort of, I was thinking it kind of uh, sepia tones, the blackness. <laughs> it's a little crinkly, around, toasty around the edges, and it's just, ah, it's not so bad. Um, or, you know, looking up, uh, you know, Stephen Curry highlights or something like that helps. Uh, and then another thing that I stumbled upon is in, the, in the YouTube realm was finding these moments of musical uh, uniqueness when something sort of jumped out of the normal realm of, of just musicians performing the way that they do. And so I wrote about one of those moments. Some say love is a burning thing That it makes a fiery ring I know that love is a fading thing Just as fickle as a feather in the stream See, I saw love, it came to me Put its face up to my face so I could see Then I saw love disfigure me Into something I am not recognizing September 23rd, 1970, on the Johnny Cash Show. Johnny's guest is Ray Charles. Johnny says, Ray has a new album of 
country songs called Love Country Style. Ray Charles laughs and says, you know that city love ain't quite like country style. No, it's a little different, Johnny says. Everyone laughs. For a place I once endured an actual bloody civil war, it's strange to think of how the real divisions in the United States have always been more about country versus city. It's even stranger to think something so fluid and ambiguous as music could be caught up in those dividing lines. But as Ray Charles is about to demonstrate, those divisions have nothing to do with words, chords, melodies. Ray says, well, here's a little song called Ring of Fire. He says the title of the song like it burns his mouth. He supposedly kicked heroin in 1966. The way his body is pulsing, looks like he's on cocaine. I can see electricity running through his body. And every word he says, delivered with a delicious joy. If he's on drugs, it's quite an argument for doing drugs. The song begins with a large unseen band backing Ray. They have a very groovy 70s feel, light years away from the mariachi-influenced country folk of the original. When Ray sings one line and leaves a space that was nor normally occupied by a horn line in Cash's version, there's just this big, deep groove into which we can push all of our secret physical urges. The most compelling moment comes at the breakdown after the first chorus. Ray stops playing piano, looks up with joy and just spasms for a few seconds as the bass line keeps going. He lets out a and comes in right with the band. You notated this moment musically on a score. There would be nothing in Ray's part except for several rests, yet it's one of the most fascinating things I've ever seen a musician do. He's just silently convulsing with the rhythm as though doing so were more important than any notes he could play. Wherever he is, the invisible bass player seems taken aback. He even begins to lose the tempo, but then Ray comes back in and syncs up with the big brass hits. The subtext of this song really was about a certain female body part. Ray takes that subtext explodes it all over the Ryman Auditorium. On the last course, he gets really quiet, starts to sound a little unearthly. That ring of fire, that ring of fire, he chants. Then his voice falls to just an ominous whisper. It burns, burns, burns. That ring of fire. As the band behind him dies out, Ray's still going, like he doesn't want the song to end. And he lets out one last shudder and cackle like he just invented the orgasm. Burns, ah-ha-ha-ha. <laughs> crowd gives a standing ovation. Johnny returns to the stage, looking like a man who just watched someone have sex with his wife, but was so in awe of how good he was at it that he could only thank him. Say love, it's a burning thing But it makes a fiery ring I know that love is a caging thing It's the killer come to call from some awful dream All you folks come to see Stand there in the glass, staring at me. My heart is wild. My bones are steel. I could kill you with my bare hands if I was free.
chapter 11. I'm in awe of that moment because I know how hard it can be to locate that sexuality, not to mention be confident about it. Sometimes you meet a new person and are just totally turned off and it's not because of their smell, it's not because of their personality, and it's not even because of their objective hotness. But rather you suspect it's embedded deep in their DNA like there was a time thousands of years ago when glaciers were receding and your ancestors' tribe passed a very similar but still different tribe on a European steppe. And an elder from your tribe made it clear with his body language that it was not okay to mate with someone from that tribe. Like, not just not okay in a romantic Romeo and Juliet way, but not okay in a we'll gore you with our primitive spears and throw you in a crevasse kind of way. And that fear of goring was stored in your ancestor's DNA and carried down to you so that all it takes now is approximately one-eighth of a second on an OkCupid date for you to recognize that it's just not going to go anywhere. But maybe it's rude to walk out on a date after only one-eighth of a second. There was no overt talk of sex in my house when I was young. When I was nine, I watched Purple Rain with my parents. I'll never forget that uncomfortable moment when Apollonia takes her clothes off and jumps in Lake Minnetonka. It was the first time I had seen a naked woman, the first time I had seen those things she had. That night, the image of her kept me awake, even though I didn't know what the other parts really looked like. A few years later, when my voice was changing, my mom left a copy of What's Happening to Me at my door without comment. The book consisted of cartoon drawings of people going through changes and trying to understand sex. This approach was probably a little too cute. Some aspects could have been explained more explicitly. Sexual intercourse, I learned from the book, was a moment when two people were naked in the dark and rubbed up against each other until there was a big pop. What was the pop? How did it happen simultaneously between two people? I wondered about that for a long time. And I still wonder if you can identify the exact moment you fall in love with someone, if you plotted your affections for someone on a timeline. A colorful poster board presentation with a big gray area labeled not in love and a big yellow area labeled in love. It seems to me that there must be some moment when you cross over from one area to the next. For me, with Melanie, it was when she asked me to help her take off her Chinese gown. This was after I had married and divorced Amanda, but was still living in the house on Emerson Street, in which the two of us had lived. I had moved down to the basement, and Melanie lived on the second floor next to Amanda. The divorce was necessary and amicable, but it still felt a little odd to be hanging out with Melanie in that house. One night, Melanie and I met up at a party that we had both agreed to dress up for, me the best I could with a shirt and tie, she in a beautiful shiny silk gown she bought when she was in China. We came back to the house after the party and talked in the kitchen. We talked for a long time, still in our nice clothes. I wanted the conversation to keep going even though it was late. 
reached his stand and she said goodnight and went up to her bedroom. I felt the emptiness of that moment, the night suddenly over. I was about to walk down to my basement room with my chin on my chest when she came back down the stairs and said, can you help me take off this gown? It's too tight. We didn't kiss at all that night, but we continued to hang out for weeks. One night, while Amanda was out of town visiting her new boyfriend, I slept in her old bedroom. I had a fitful night of sleep, knowing Melanie was just a few feet away. I got up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, and as I walked back to the room, I saw Melanie standing outside her bedroom in a white moon, just floating there. As if she were created to stand right there at that quiet moment in human history. It was just a coincidence that she'd gotten up to use the bathroom at the same time. She looked like a benevolent ghost who could see into the future and tell me how to avoid danger. She looked like every idea of sex I ever had. Bologna diving into the lake and the pop in the dark. I wasn't even really sure if she was actually standing there. That moment stretched out forever. Me stunned by her sudden presence. Us finding each other at 3.47 a.m. or whatever. In reality, it was probably only a few seconds. It would have been all right, I suppose, if I had walked right up and kissed her that night, both of us drunk on the surreal possibilities. Instead, I went back to my empty bed and buried myself in months of regret. Melanie later told me about the moment that she fell for me. I was in the kitchen talking with her and Lori one afternoon, and we noticed how the clock on the wall hadn't been set forward since daylight savings time. Melanie took the clock off the wall, and it slipped out of her hands. It fell on the floor, and in a burst of whimsy, I jumped on it. As soon as it hit the floor, assuming that it was already going to be broken, I kicked it with my foot and yelled out, Stupid clock, die! Melanie laughed, as though I were a canatonic madman who suddenly sprang into action for no reason. Plot that moment on the timeline in bright yellow paper. Shortly after that, Melanie took a job in Los Angeles and moved out of the house. Nothing overtly romantic had happened between us. I'd have to wait. I'm on the phone with my friend Melanie. She's in the Dells. Hi, Melanie. Hi. Hi. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just uh, listened to the section about us uh, in that old house on Emerson Street. And I remember meeting you, uh, me and my brother were setting up a like recording studio in the basement. And mm-hmm. then one day you knocked on the door and you said, hi, I'm going to live here now. <laughs> and I said, mm-hmm. wait, what? <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> and um, unbeknownst to me, Amanda had uh, started renting out the a room in the basement, which meant that we couldn't have a recording studio there because it would be right next to you. I guess maybe that was the first time I met you. I think I thought you were really weird. Yeah, I'm sure you yeah. did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did that ever change? <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> You've had a lot of jobs, Nick. Uh, yeah. A lot of really crazy jobs. I remember you getting fired a lot. Yeah, that's in the book, the part that you haven't read. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
There was a period where I was like doing temp stuff and working a lot of odd jobs and I just consistently got fired. Yeah. And it was kind of, and then you'd come home and you'd be like wounded and, and it was always kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> because secretly like here's this person who has like all this mega talent and obviously the um, world hasn't seen it yet or experienced it yet. Or knows what even what to do with it, but I always think I always think that um, like the sort of uh, the redemption that you had when you had to work at Kaiser for so long, like mm-hmm. just doing those jobs that you hated, the temp agency yep. things, working at Kaiser in the cubicles, data entry or whatever, and then like several years later, your music ends up being there, like um, music for when you call in and you're on hold. Right, yeah. Like, I feel like that's, like, redemption. And they, you actually got paid for that. Yeah. Like, probably not that much. But no, a lot, a lot, a lot, probably more than, like, a month's worth of work there. Yeah. So they, for all this time, they thought you were, like, this, this weirdo in the corner, this pale, pale, skinny weirdo <laughs> in, a, in the corner. <laughs> like, what is do we do with this a, guy? <laughs> is this just a forum for you to attack me? <laughs> I'm trying to remember the visuals. I mean, because there was this, like, visual of you back then. Like, you were very skinny. You were very, like, pale because you were always indoors, like, either writing or doing music or on a computer. You are always a little bit distraught. And so there was this aura around you that people are like, what do we do with this guy? I didn't know what to expect coming to Arcata on this day. Um, I, uh, I didn't realize until yesterday when I posted it online and somebody was like, nice. Like, it's not my intention. I'm not, <laughs> not particularly suited to this. Uh, well, the things I make are not necessarily, you know what I'm trying to say. Um, a, a couple nights ago in San Francisco, I was played this uh, uh, sexy literary uh, variety show. And I was, I was the first one on, and the, the host of it was this comedian, and she really hyped it up. And there, and there was some sexy poetry later in the show, definitely. But my thing was not necessarily that, but she I either didn't know the order or didn't care, and she was like, you guys ready for some sexy, sexy stuff? Really racy, racy stuff? Dirty stuff? Here's Nick Jana, and I'm like, did you know about this scientific fact? <clears throat> um, it does seem weird that, uh, <laughs> um, just to, to speak about marijuana for a minute, um, there's, a, there's an issue where uh, it's legal in some states and it's not legal in other states, which is really strange. I don't know if anybody's had issues with that. Oh, well, it's not legal here. Never mind. Um, <laughs> but I was in Colorado last year and I was having stomach pains and I was at the show in Fort Collins and I was telling somebody about it and she's like, oh, we'll take this. And she just pulled out this huge jar of weed and I was like, I don't need all of that, you know. And she took out two, two buds and put them in a, in a little uh, cellophane and I put them in my pocket and I left the state and my stomach started feeling better and I forgot about it and I was driving through West Texas 
uh, where they, they don't joke around about that stuff. Um, and uh, it's hard to believe that I just didn't even think about it. I forgot about it. And you're driving through, and like right as we're approaching, my, my car mate said, you don't have any weed, do you? I'm like, hmm, maybe. And then we're, we're approaching the thing, and uh, I saw the dog. And when I saw the dog, I knew I was screwed because I saw a uh, Mythbusters where they tried to fool these dogs, you know? And they put, they gave it a scent, and then they wrapped. Let me see this. They wrapped it up in dirty diapers, put it in a, a random spot in an enormous warehouse, and the dog is just like in five seconds, like here it is. <laughs> like you can't fool them. They're they trying to track them, and they like run across the river and run back and change their clothes and everything. And the dog's like, there he is. Um, so as we drove up, the dog is like humping the hood of my car. He's like this guy, and they pull us over and. Uh, they're like, look, we're looking for, he said, uh, we're looking for pounds, not ounces. So like, how much do you have? And I'm like, ah, it's just a little bit. He's like, where is it? And I told him, and um, they, had, they already had it. Um, and so we go into the office, and, and the way it works is that they call the, uh, if it's not a federal thing, they call the local sheriff and see if he cares. Um, since this is a major checkpoint where they once got like Willie Nelson, this guy, the sheriff must be really busy, and they said, well, he's at lunch. <laughs> we have to wait for him to call us back. And so we were sitting there, and every officer in the office had a huge bulletproof vest on, and they all were chewing tobacco and spitting it into large, uh, empty, monster energy drink cans. <laughs> you know, so it's good that we know we're cracking down on substance abuse. Um, <laughs> and we're sitting in this pew, and like the guys are like this close to me, and just like doing paperwork, and they don't really have anything to do, and I'm just sitting there. And so one guy, the youngest guy probably, is like, so what are you, what are you doing out here? What, are you traveling around? I'm like, yeah, I'm an author. I wrote a book. He's like, oh, what's your book about? And I was like, all right, here's my chance. And I feel like the, the, the music stirring behind me, if this was my, my Oscar moment. And I said, well, it's a book about freedom. It's a book about, and I realize I can only do this because I'm white. I can only say this because I'm white. But uh, I said, it's a book about freedom, and it's a, it's about how you, know, you don't have to do the things that people tell you to do. You should find the things you do that make you happy and pursue that, and, um, not just try to fit in. And he, and he looked at me and he said, uh, he said, well, this is going to give you a lot of street cred, right? I said, what? And he said, yeah, getting busted by the feds. I was like, and he said, I swear to God, he said this in 2015, he said, uh, you didn't even have to get shot like 50 cent. I was like, whoa. <laughs> I'll take my, <laughs> I'll take my uh, uh, silent, uh, <laughs> I stopped talking. <laughs> anyway, they let us go. Uh, they didn't give me any citation or fine, but two weeks later, I was going from Michigan to New York and I cut through Canada and coming back into the States, uh, as soon as I gave them my ID, he's like, give me your keys. And he took my keys. They brought out a boot for my car. Five dudes in <laughs> jackets escorted me out. They tore up everything in my car. So I'm on a list. I made it. I made it. <laughs> I made it, Mom. I made it on the list. That's my weed story. I don't really <laughs> smoke it that much. <laughs> it's just funny to me that I'm on a list because I... Thank <laughs> you.
you tell your stories they scratch at the glory of life in the penalty they evaporate my enemies tangle with their ripcord as they straighten up their clipboard they spit out words they'd never say like they tried the wrong chardonnay and everyone 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 is dying to know that everything 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 will be all right and you sing your songs they reverse all my wrongs they pardon all the traitors in the garden with the caterers they fix the broken filaments a glass of coke and junior mints cannot dissolve the molecules change the hearts of all these fools and everyone 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 is trying to know that everything 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 will be all right Don't be afraid of change, you once told me. The things you love had to change to get to the point where they were lovable to you. We were in the produce aisle, you waved at the display of cameo apples and said these all used to be flowers. I went swimming in the Gulf of Mexico the other day. You can wait out for about three quarters of a mile. The water is still just waist deep. Looking back at the shore, you can't distinguish your friends from the trash cans. There's a long line of wooden poles spaced 100 feet apart out there, marking the point where the water finally gets deep. It's kind of scary to walk up to them, these tall poles, with pelicans resting on top, stretching their long necks. As you approach them, you begin to worry that there's too much ocean behind you. What would happen if you took a step and there was nothing there? You'd be swept away while the pelicans go on stretching their long necks. I suppose that's what falling in love feels like. Trying not to slip, Nick. Jaina time. Today I read three chapters from my book, Get It While You Can, from Perfect Day Publishing. Thank you to The Sanctuary in Arcata, California for hosting me. All musical accompaniment is written and recorded by me. This theme music is by Richie Green. Uh, this is what I do around the world all the time. My book is available online along with tour dates at nickjaina.com. 
That's N-I-C-K-J-A-I-M-A.